Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. I've been thinking a lot about starting points and where to get started when you want to help people understand the Bible. And so as I've thought about it, the thing that I've thought is it's more important to get handles on the side of your Bible so that you have something that you can work with, something that you can use, rather than go for an exhaustive, detailed look at at all the ins and outs. So there's always more, and that's that's one of the things about uh, about biblical studies and about you know the unqualified scholar. There's always more, and so I would encourage you as you continue your journey of of learning about the Bible and learning from the Bible that you would always remember there's more. And there are certainly better resources, more production valued, all kinds of things. When I think about stories and when I think about the story of the Bible, um, my favorite story is actually, like my favorite movie is Shrek. So if you meet a donkey and he's talking, you're watching Shrek. Um, and in the movie, if okay, so if you're not familiar with Shrek and you don't have any kids and you maybe you just missed that whole thing, um, it's available, it's out there in the world. Uh, <clears throat> the idea is it takes a fairy tale and it includes a donkey. And the story is about this ogre who has to get back his land from the evil uh, Prince Farquaad. He's not a king yet. He's only a prince. And so in this story, you have uh, a problem and you have villains and you have heroes and the heroes are often unlikely. Well, the Bible is one united story as well. It's the story of God and his relationship to people and his relationship to people through his people, the the chosen people of Israel who produced the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so all those words might be unfamiliar to you, but what we want to do is get handles on this. The Bible has one story. And so if we were going to think about the overarching story of the Bible, this isn't new. This isn't mine. I'm reporting on what other people have have distilled from the Bible. And I, I agree with this, that the Bible starts with the creation. And very shortly after the creation, we have what's called the fall of man, the entry of wrongdoing and sin into the world. And this creates, this sets up our basic conflict. We are not right with God. And so because we're not right with God, we need redemption. We need a solution to this problem. And so in solving this problem, you can see from the, from the Old Testament, from the, the beginning books of the Bible, that this problem of redemption just continues on the page of Scripture. And you see the, the effects of the fall in the wrongdoing that mankind or human beings do to one another and our longing, our hope. Is for restoration. So in the Old Testament, we have the effects of the fall. In the New Testament, we have the effects of the fall, but we also have Jesus. And Jesus is God's ultimate solution to the problem of sin and wrongdoing. And so I I want to walk through these four different elements, you know, as we as we talk together today. Now, systematic theologians, guys who uh, who are biblical scholars and who do the biblical studies thing, they're always going to want more precision. They're always going to want more detail. But again, we're not after detail. We just want handles that we can grab and hold on to. Okay, this big book that says a lot of things is really one story about God's interaction with humankind. 
And it's about the culmination of God's restoration of humanity through Jesus Christ. And so we want to at least understand that we're, we're not looking for super precision. We are looking for handles. When we think about creation, you go back to the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis starts in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Um, <clears throat> it's a fantastic book. And it was uh, it was written to the ancient people of Israel. It was written in the Hebrew language. Um, people talk about you know the sources behind the book of Genesis. There's a lot of scholarly discussion there. But in the book of Genesis, one of the biggest things that we see is that God is the creator of of everything. Now, God being the creator of everything, humankind included, he also is the moral <laughs> owner, the moral owner of everything. And so he gets to set the rules. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. What are the things people are supposed to do or not do? All of those things belong, like the right to say those things belongs to the owner. It belongs to God. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he populated the earth, and he separated uh, all this from all that. And one of the things that the text of Genesis tells us is that as God evaluated his creation, he said that it was very good. And in this very good creation, he puts two people, Adam and Eve, um, and Adam and Eve have the ability to make choices the ability to decide for themselves whether they will return God's love or reject God's love. And if you're familiar with the story, then pick up a Bible, read the first couple chapters, and you'll catch the groove that Adam and Eve were placed in a very good place in the Garden of Eden. They were told specifically, take care of the garden. And they were permitted to eat from every tree in the garden except one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is very interesting. Um, it's the experience of evil that they were prohibited from. And so you can imagine, if you were in the garden, you would never eat from that tree, right? Well, hold, hold on to that thought. Because let's take a brief aside and talk about why it's an apple. Because the Bible never says that it's an apple. And so it's not an apple, uh, at least not for sure, um, but in the 300s. So remember, the Genesis was originally written in the Hebrew language, and so it's been translated uh, in the path of translation. It's been translated into Greek uh, for uh, hearers and listeners and readers in the, in the first century and thereabouts. Um, it's been translated into Latin, like in the history of the church. We go from uh, Hebrew to Greek to Latin being the most popular and common language. And then it gets put into English. Now, before it gets put into English, as it gets put into Latin, there's a scholar named Jerome. And Jerome was told, hey, translate the Bible. And so as he translates the Bible, he's referring back to other things uh, he's referring back to Hebrew. He's he's looking at the Hebrew Old Testament, and he wants to put it into good Latin, the kind of Latin that people can read and understand. And when he translates the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he uses, he has several words he could choose, but he chooses the word malice. Now, what's interesting in the Latin of the time is that malice could also, M-A-L-U-S, malice could also mean an apple tree. And so thus was born the belief or the legend that Adam and Eve ate an apple in the garden. 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Bible doesn't say it was an apple. It's safe to eat apples. Um, this was kind of cemented in the um, cultural psychology of the time. Jerome translated into Latin. Everybody sort of sees malice and, and apple tree there. Uh, evil as, ap uh, not that apples are evil, but they saw this language connection. And so the artists of the time began to, to paint the fruit as an apple. This was cemented by uh, Milton's Paradise Lost and other artwork, thus the apple. Now, we don't know what the fruit was. But we know it was God's command not to eat the fruit. And what happens here is that people, people look at this and they think, oh, that's ridiculous. God, why would God say don't eat this fruit? Why is it, why is it so big of a deal to eat an apple? Well, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not an apple. And God, as the moral owner, has the right to say, thou shalt not. Now, you and I, I, I know people. I know me. Inside me, I go, what's the big deal? You know what the big deal is? When God commands something, that's the big deal. Because God is the creator and moral owner of the world. I, as a part of the creation, am obligated to submit to him. But here's the thing. I don't want to. Maybe it's not eating fruit from a tree. Maybe it's something else. But I know in my heart that I want to rebel against God. And that's the basic problem. The basic problem is what will I do with God's moral authority? Will I submit to God's moral authority or will I reject God's moral authority? Well, that's kind of an us thing, isn't it? And if you feel that in your own heart, you know, that's, that's that rejection of God's moral authority. And it might be different for you. Maybe it's... Um, Maybe your relationships are really broken by selfishness, by what you want, and by desiring things that are beyond you. Maybe you're in, in financial trouble because you want more than your income will provide for. Maybe you struggle with envy and jealousy and all those things. Our hearts are still very much in rebellion against God. And it's a constant act of submission to His authority, to coming back to the Bible and saying, nope, this is not my domain. This is what God says. And I want to follow what God says to the very best of my ability. God help us. Now there's another thing that's happening <clears throat> in the text of Genesis. You see, the people of Israel have recently been slaves in Egypt. Um, and so this person who's writing the book of Genesis, Moses, he's writing to remind them of their history. So if you go through the book of Genesis, you'll see that it's a book of history from the time of writing. But then the book of Exodus picks up with the contemporary story. It's history for us, but it was contemporary at the time it was written of a guy named Moses. Now, Moses was sort of, he was chosen by God to help the people of Israel, to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land. And so the book of Genesis records the promises that God made, the things that God is trying to help them understand. And what, what happened in the slavery is that the Egyptians wanted to grind down the culture and worldview of the people of Israel, because you don't want your slaves to think too much. 
And so they're trying to destroy them as a people. They're trying to crush them and, and just make them into just basically objects that can be used to do all the construction projects that we still see in Egypt today. And so Moses wrote to the people of Israel after they had been freed from slavery in order to teach them who they were, in order that they could understand their identity and their God. And one of the things that is just fascinating about the book of Genesis is that God is the creator and he created everything. And the Egyptians worshipped the creation. They had all kinds of gods. They had frog gods. They had bull gods. They thought that Pharaoh was a god. They thought that the sun and the moon and the stars were all gods. And what the book of Genesis very clearly says is, hey, people of Israel, Jewish people, your God made everything that's in the creation. And so think about that for just a second. Think about that. As If you're a person from Israel and your worldview has been ground down and you've been freed from slavery by the mighty hand of God, Genesis, Exodus, great story, read it. You've been freed and you're standing there and you don't really quite understand your history and you don't know who you are. And Moses comes and says, hey, by the way, your God, the person who freed you from slavery, created everything, including the sun. Oh, wait a minute. The Egyptians told me that the sun was a god. You're telling me that our god created the sun? Yeah. Oh, so it's not even a god at all? Like, Imagine how, how that like changes your view of the world and your view of yourself. Your god created everything that you can see. Fascinating. So there's an apologetic value of creation from Genesis that it kind of says neener neener to the Egyptians. Hey, all of the stuff that you worship our God created, why would we worship that? Why would we be ground down? Why would we be slaves? We have this inherent dignity because God created us. There is this thing that we constantly lose. It's the idea of our own dignity and the idea of the dignity of other people. Everyone that you meet, this is from Genesis 1.26, everyone that you meet is created in God's image. And we've messed that up with wrongdoing and sin, but it's still true and it's always true. So the Egyptians are worshiping all these gods and the Hebrew people are, are being told that they're nothing until they're freed and taken out of Egypt and Moses reminds them, hey, you're not nothing. You are God's special creation and God loves you. That's true for us today. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the one true God, created all of the things that the Egyptians worshipped. Why would you worship the creation when your God is the creator? You know, worshipping the creation is a way that we even now try to manipulate and get around God's moral authority. We don't like submission, and so we create all these little gods that we sort of have control over. This happened in the history of Israel. It happens all around us. You have to submit to the creator. You have to submit to God's moral authority. You can manipulate the creation to do whatever you want. You can, you can find a way around. You can create creative little rules to get what you want. But in the creation, God is the creator and moral owner. And we have an obligation to submit our minds, our hearts, ourselves to his authority. I'm not talking about the authority of the church. I'm talking about the authority of God. 
That's the important thing. Now, the church is related to that. The church is God's uh, desire and expression. It's called the bride of Christ. The church is good. That doesn't mean that it's perfect. Submission to God is the starting point. So as we think about creation, fall, rescue, or redemption, restoration, we need to remember that everything started with God's creation. Adam and Eve rejected God's moral authority. It wasn't an arbitrary rule. It was God's rule, and it was for their good. But they rejected that, and they ate the fruit, whether it was, an, it was an apple or not. And so as Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God sort of knew that this was going to happen. I mean, it's not like God didn't know that they were going to eat the fruit. And it resulted in a curse on mankind. Now, this curse on mankind is really, you can see elements of God's protection. Because the other tree that's named in, in the garden is the tree of life. And so can you imagine if there was no plan, like in, in rebelling against God, God has to curse Adam and Eve. There has to be judgment for sin. There has to be judgment for wrongdoing. And so there's this curse on mankind in Genesis 3.16. It talks about how there's a conflict of desire. Marriage is harder today and harder after the fall than it was before the fall. There's difficulty in childbirth. There's difficulty in having children. There's hard labor rather than uh, there's hard labor to get your food rather than the easy pickings that Adam and Eve had in the garden, and finally mankind will die. You know, death is the kind of thing that when you're really young you don't really think about it. When you get to the middle of your life, you think about it a little bit. And once you pass into old age, it can become a, a consuming idea because we all know that we will die. We see the effects of the fall around us all the time. We see the effects of the fall in, in war and conflict. We see the effects of the fall when we don't have enough money at the end of the, to, to make it to the end of the month. I mean, have you been broke, broke? I mean, ramen noodle and, and you know, whatever's left in the fridge broke. We see the effects of the fall. There's difficulty not just in having children, but in having children. I mean, if you have children or you're around children at all, you realize how difficult it is even when they become adults and you're trying to help them as best you can. Mortality is something that we avoid thinking about, but sometimes we can't stop thinking about it because we cannot stop mortality. So we see the effects of the fall all around us. We see that the world is a fallen place. We know instinctively that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we wrestle with that. Where is God? God is still who he is. God is still creator and moral owner. God wants a solution to the fall. When we come back to the Bible, when we think about how the Bible expresses this and talks about this, the Old Testament uses often, often it uses characters and characterization to teach about God. One of the examples would be the story of Joseph. And so in the story of Joseph, um, it's, the, it's in Genesis, it's, it's a great story. Um, in the story, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. He goes out, down into Egypt and actually ends up protecting his family from a famine. And so in this character, what we see that Joseph becomes kind of a hero figure because he trusts God implicitly. He does what he knows is right. Excuse me. He does what he knows is right really without fail. And he, come, he becomes a hero, an example for the people. Hey, be like Joseph. Don't chase after foreign associations. Don't chase after uh, women who will lead you off into trouble. Um, offer forgiveness to your brothers. I mean, there's just so much richness and depth to the story of Joseph. 
you can see the broken world that we live in just about uh, on just about every page of the Bible. And so as we uh, as we examine this and think about this, you have to also see in the page of Scripture God's plan of redemption or rescue. It starts, you know, even in Genesis, there's uh, Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the gospel in a nutshell, where it talks about how um, Satan's head will be uh, crushed and um, the child of Adam and Eve, the, the Savior, will be bruised in the heel. And so scholars have seen in that sort of a a gospel in a nutshell that eventually God will overcome death and disease and sickness and sin. All the wrongdoing will be overcome by the power of God. And you see this in the page of Scripture in other ways, in other places as well. You see that there's an idea called substitution. And the idea of substitution This starts back in Genesis as well, because as Adam and Eve realize when they eat from the the tree, they realize that they are naked, they become ashamed. Really what they realize is that they've sinned. They've done wrong against God, that they've rebelled against their creator. And so God comes in, he makes garments of skin for them. It's the very first sacrifice. It's Genesis 3.21. In that, there is a theme of substitution, that you can bring a substitute to God And if it's the substitute that God allows and ordains and says, this is the substitute I'll accept, then you can receive forgiveness from God. You see it in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain uh, brought an offering to God and it was the wrong kind of offering. Abel brought the right sacrifice. And so in this... In this idea of sacrifice, there's the idea of substitution. And it's an ancient idea. It goes all the way back. That you can bring a substitute to God, and that substitute takes your place. I've often said that if it's you or the sheep, the sheep gets it every time. And, you know, we might think that's a little bit icky or a little bit hard to deal with, but that is the way that it works. There's a substitute and a substitution idea that goes all the way back within uh, the page of Scripture, within the Bible. And so we've talked about creation, we've talked about the fall, and the plan of redemption, this third step in the, in the overarching story, is that even in the Old Testament, there was a plan for restoration and for people to have a relationship to God. It started with a priesthood that was based in the family, that the oldest child would be the, the family's priest and would mediate, would go to God for them and would learn and teach and talk and provide you know, sacrifices. There's a family priesthood idea that's an ancient idea. That priesthood gets transferred over to a national priesthood in the book of Numbers, Numbers 344. There's a, there's a, and you have to kind of understand and catch the groove of what's going on there. Because what's happening is that there is, they have become a nation of people, and that nation of people needs a priesthood who will mediate their relationship to God, who will go to God for them, and who will provide the sacrifices that will be the substitute. Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement, where there is a mediator, the high priest. He brings a substitute, a two-goat offering. And in that two-goat offering, uh, that will provide for atonement, a washing away or covering over of the sin of the people. Now, those ideas are important. Mediation and substitution. Someone in, in this plan of redemption, someone has to go to God for you. And a substitute payment has to be made for your sin, for your wrongdoing, for your rebellion. 
And that's an important idea. In this plan of redemption, even if you go back to the Old Testament, this is, a, this is an idea that's present there. It's, it's prominent there. That people have to have a mediator and a substitute. And that's where Jesus comes in. So you fast forward into the New Testament. There's, there's so much more in the Old Testament. And again, we're not looking for exhaustive detail. We're looking for handles by which we can hold on to the Bible as one story. So there's the creation, the fall, the plan of redemption. And in this plan of redemption, Jesus is the ultimate goal of redemption. Hebrews 9.11 actually makes the explicit point that Jesus is the mediator and Jesus is the substitute. You can see this idea also in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where uh, Christ is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place, and again, this is a big idea. We're, we can take a little time with it. So the mercy seat is the idea that in the Old Testament, the high priest took blood into the presence of God and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, the guy who's writing the book of Romans, specifically about the plan of redemption, he calls Jesus the mercy seat. That's what the word means. The word is translated often propitiation. The meaning behind it, the word behind it in Greek is hilasterion, and the idea behind that is the mercy seat. And so Christ is the one who is your mediator in substitution. And it's important to realize that this plan of redemption is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can, by good works, by an accumulation of accumulation and distribution of your wealth, like that's not how you get right with God. <clears throat> it is only by God's appointed mediator and God's appointed substitute. It's only by Jesus. <clears throat> you can't Burger King your religion. Now, okay, that's that's a generational thing. I'm 52, so back when I was a kid, there was this commercial where Burger King, and you can look it up on the YouTube, um, where Burger King says, you can have it your way. You can do whatever you want. If you walk into Burger King and you just want the burger with nothing else, they'll give it to you. If you say you want a bun, they'll give that to you. They'll charge you the same amount either way. They don't care, as long as they get their money. So many times we want to Burger King our relationship to God. Hey God, thanks for the thanks for being my mediator and substitute, but um, <clears throat> I'll wait until later. I'll, I'll order that later at the end of my life. Well, you don't know when the end of your life is going to be. Or you might think, okay, God, I'll I'll just I'm going to trust that you're going to slip me in, even though I'm not really submitting to your moral authority. Well, I don't think that's the way that that works. I think submission to God's moral authority means that we recognize when we're wrong, that we recognize our sin, that we come to him and say, please forgive me. And that's where God says, yes, we need a mediator and substitute. Oh, how about Jesus? That's great. That'll work. Why would God go through all of this? I mean, why, why would God do this? Why not just give everybody a free pass? I mean, how about just a life mulligan? Well, even Lady Justice, you know, has this, she's blind, she has the scales, but she also carries a sword. And that's an important idea. You see, if God made us to love him back, and I believe that he did, God made us to love him back, but we have to have the freedom to do that. You see, I love my wife. 
but she has the freedom to reject that love. Both of our names are on the mortgage, so I don't think she's going anywhere. Um, I, I, I love my wife. She could, I guess, and I don't know where she's going to live. But anyway, I digress. Why would God go through all of this? Love involves a choice. And God created his people with the ability to love him back. The big question is, will you? And see, that's where you have the choice to obey God and come to him through his mediator and his substitute, or you have a choice to rebel and reject God and say, hey, God, no thanks, I'll have the apple. I'll have my way. Well, your way is not going to get you into his presence. And so God went through all of this. God went through sending his son, Jesus. God went through dealing with human rebellion. He did all of this because he loves us. And he wants us to have the freedom to love him back. Another part of this is the idea of justice. You see, if if God is just, and I believe that he is, then sin has to be paid for. Wrongdoing has to be paid for. And you can either accept a substitute or you can pay for it yourself. Now, I don't know what you have in your home. I have, <clears throat> I have some people and some dogs and I even have a basement cat or two. And so there are certain rules about living in the house. We don't, you know, we don't tolerate too much nonsense. And so if, if one of the dogs was biting children, the dogs would have to be rehomed. You know, if, if one of the, if one, someone can't control their bowels, you know, then we have to have a plan for that. You know, people get more latitude than cats, but we have to have a plan for that because justice in a household, you recognize justice in a household. If somebody leaves a mess in the living room, someone's going to come in and say, hey, who left this mess in the living room? Imagine rebellion against your creator. I mean, God's not going to be like, oh, don't worry about that. No, God is going to clean the house. He's going to come in and say, who did this? And people are going to be held accountable. People being held accountable is an important idea if you've ever been wronged. Have you ever been wronged? I have. And I trust that God will hold people to account for their wrongdoing. And so one of the objections that somebody might come up with, they might say, hey, does that mean that a bad person can go to heaven? Boy, I hope so, because I'm a bad person. You know, in and of myself, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to love God back and follow him as best I can. But the reality is, is if only good people get to have a right relationship with God, the question becomes how good? And then the other question is, am I good enough? And so now we're stuck with a relationship with God that depends on works. That means I have to get up in the morning and labor and work hard and work hard and work hard to be good. But wait a minute, that's not really what we're talking about. The Bible in Ephesians tells us that it is not by good works that we earn a relationship to God. And so what that means is by his grace, by his goodness, by his love for us. And his love for us is incredible. It's like this incredible ocean of love and grace. And he wants to shower this on us through Jesus. And so that's the important thing. Can a bad man, if he believes in Jesus, can he go to heaven? Can he be, have a right relationship with God? Boy, I hope so. Because I know that in and of myself, I am not enough. And if that bad man really understands what his redemption cost, man, he'll probably end up being a pastor or something. He won't make excuses. He won't minimize his wrongdoing. He'll own it or she will own it. We cheapen what Christ did in redemption if only good people can have it. 
Grace is bigger. God's, God's overflowing love, God's goodness towards us is bigger than you can imagine. But you have to accept it. You have to come to him his way. And God's justice, the idea that if someone has done wrong, they'll be held to account for it. That's bigger than we can imagine, too. Because both those things have to be true. God's love and God's justice have to balance each other. He can't be so loving that he says, oh, don't worry about justice. Don't worry about your rebellion. That wouldn't be right. And his justice can't be, well, there's no, no chance for you because he has to be good and loving. And so those two things are in tension. We see the tension, but God, through his love, provided his son for us. He provided things through Jesus. And so we have creation, fall, redemption, finally restoration. In restoration, God puts things back the way they were always intended to be. God puts things back into proper perspective. This is when Christ, so Christians believe that Christ, okay, Christians believe. Now, here's where we get into that detail thing where some Christians believe one thing, other Christians believe another. And so, generally speaking, maybe I should say I believe, I believe that Christ will return to earth to restore not just humanity, but also the creation itself. So that the world that we live in will have a fundamentally different character. It will go back to being like the Garden of Eden. And the thing that will be different for us is we will have chosen to love God back. The hearts and minds of God's followers will be restored. The creation itself will return to a state of glory. And so what we've seen here, what I want you to understand, the takeaway for all this, is to put handles on the Bible. So that as you read the Bible, you have these four categories in mind. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And you can see different aspects of this as you turn the page, as you go through Scripture, as you read Genesis. And I hope that you will. But as you read the book of Genesis, what you'll see is that God created, and he created it very good. Man sinned. Man did the wrong thing. He rebelled against God. He ate the fruit. And the reality of it is, if it was me or you, we'd have done it too. But God made a plan. A plan of redemption that is thousands of years old. Before the creation even, God knew that he planned redemption through his son, Jesus. And then he also planned for the restoration of all things. And so these handles, as you read the Bible, you'll see these things. So if you're reading from the front to the back, if you're reading in the middle, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So you'll have those ideas as convenient handles, and you can catch the one overarching story of what God's doing in the Bible. I hope this has been helpful for you. Please uh, you know, like and subscribe and do all those internet things that people do, and uh, we'll catch you soon on The Unqualified Scholar.